electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, Tesla's Investor Day now underway. We are expecting Elon Musk to announce his long-term expansion plans, a potential new factory in Mexico, a new Model Y, and more. Will this be enough to keep this year's bull run rocking? We'll debate that. Plus, the Salesforce surge, the stock rocketing higher on a big earnings beat, strong guidance, and a major buyback. The conference call is just getting underway. We'll go inside the numbers just minutes from now. And later, Washington's anti-ESG moment. Moments ago, the Senate has voted to repeal a rule that allows retirement plans to consider climate change and other ESG factors into their investment decisions. How big a blow will this be to the trillions in these funds? And Eli Lilly's major price cut that will make getting insulin for diabetics much cheaper. But could there be another motive behind this move? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site. Got a full desk in-house tonight. Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Courtney Garcia. We start off with Tesla's big investor day. Execs, including Elon Musk, just taking the stage in Austin to lay out his long-term goals for Tesla, his expansion plans, a whole lot more. Musk started this event about 30 minutes later than most were expecting. Phil LeBeau has been monitoring all the action. Phil. Melissa, the first 30 minutes of this has been talking, uh, Elon Musk talking about his vision for the world becoming sustainable in terms of energy and what is possible and what he believes is possible. This is very much 20,000 feet looking down at what the what is possible breaking away from fossil fuels. There has been no news so far that is germane to Tesla investors. In other words, they haven't talked about future production plans, future models, etc. They are just starting to get to that point, uh, and I suspect within the next 15, 20 minutes, we may have some news. We're going to go back into watching uh, the rest of the Investor Day. Melissa, as soon as we have something, we'll send it back to you. Yeah, he is talking, though, Phil, about um, the switch to iron-based cells in electrification. I thought that was interesting because that's a shift that's already going on in China in terms yeah. of using lithium iron phosphate batteries. But Absolutely. that's not, I mean, that's a longer-term thing for sure. Longer term. And that's that's, that's all this mm-hmm. has been so far in terms yeah. of this is where we could go, not just Tesla, but the entire global energy ecosystem, if you will, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So we're still waiting for the specifics that relate to Tesla. And as soon as we have any, we'll let you know. Thank you, Phil. Phil LeBeau monitoring all the action there at the Investor Day. Um, the stock holding steady in the after-hours session, just down fractionally um, after a 1.5% decline in today's session. What do you think? Yeah, so listen, part three of this master plan, all good stuff. I mean, those are things pushing, I think, the world to a place I think we all want to be less dependent on fossil fuels. And I think, Elon, if you want to give him um, the most credit for anything that he has done over the last 15 years, I think it has been that. I would just say the here and now, though, when you look at this stock, okay, it's had this huge run off of those lows. And when I think about this, I go back to 2019 when the company on a gap basis was still unprofitable. Their gross margins were 17 percent. Okay, in 2022, they topped out about 25 percent. They're expected to go down this year to 22%. The stock has been cut in half from their late 2021 highs. So what's interesting to me, year over year, 
Earnings this year are expected to be flat, okay, despite revenues supposed to be up 25%. We know that they cut prices dramatically on many of their models. I still think that that earnings estimate for this year is really under pressure here, given those price increases, and especially if we see the sort of economy that I think I believe we're going to see in the back half of this year and some of the issues that they have in China. So to me, the here and now, I think the stock is still really expensive here, and I think the earnings this year are still pretty vulnerable. So I don't disagree with Dan on it being expensive here. Mm-hmm. It, it had that run up 100 points. I, 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 I sold my stock that I bought around 100, sold it up around 200. Then I got sucked back in because there was a gap in the chart up to 230. So I'm not, I'm not totally against the overbought issue, but look at what happened with Rivian. Look at what happened with Fisker. Look at what happened to all these other stocks. Lucid, Even in Georgetown, Ford. Lucid, yeah. Ford, yeah. And Ford, exactly. So Ford is a mainstay company. So in, in, in a rel- on a relative basis, they look like they're knocking it out of the park. And it's too consensus for me to think after Investor Day that it trades down 8 to 10%. That's what it always does. That's what everyone knows it always does. Maybe this time is different. Wait, so you're going to go, so consensus is that, and so you're going to go anti-consensus by holding it long, thinking it's not going to go down after Investor Day. After I'm hoping, I'm, into, I'm though, hoping. Even though it moved according to consensus into Investor Day, it's not going to move according to consensus afterwards. But it, it, it didn't really, it wasn't consensus. It was the after move off of that 106, 100 level that okay. really kind of made it pop higher. So for me, it came in from about 214 or so, all the way down to 200. So I think it it sucked out a lot of that overbought. And I think you have another shot, maybe it pops. Right. Um, But what you mentioned in terms of the other EV makers, I mean, granted, they're startups. Some of them have decent balance sheets like Rivian. Rivian cut its forecasts, right? Lucid can't sell cars. People don't want those cars. Mm-hmm. Ford is having difficulties. Solantis talked about, you know, having to get costs down. It's not an easy industry, even for the legacies to break into. Doesn't Tesla make them make themselves seem just head and shoulders above the rest because of where they are? And by the way, their balance sheet is not bad. Right. Right. All that's true. I know. Are you saying that as that should be a headwind to Tesla or a tailwind no. that nobody else can do it like Tesla can? That they're having and, more difficulty, that the competition yes. was always in the in the bear case, right. but the competition is having difficulty. Some of the, yes, I think though, but we'll see the competition evolve more. And I sure. think that of that handful of names that you put out there, we won't have five fingers left on that handful yeah. uh, in, I don't know, two years maybe. But I think that still the competition is coming. And I mean, to me, I don't know how much of the 102 to 202, how, I, I understand what you're saying, that last 12 points down, but that's, you know, 100 points up. How much of that is into the meeting? Right. That might be a fair amount and, of meeting. And just think that where Dan started off, where Tesla came from originally, though, to get down to 100. It never should have so, been there. Exactly. Okay. I, I accept that it never should have been there. I think that was sort of peak anti-Elon sentiment and when he was, you know, seeming to uh, isolate part of his potential customer base. Let's say that. Dan says it a different way. But it's pretty much the same point. So I think that was sort of Max Elon. He's uh, Elon being difficult. He's sort of really pulled that back in. So we'll see. I don't, it's, it's interesting they would start a half hour late. I don't know why. What's that about? It's like a fashion show. They, they just start earnings when it, like almost an hour <laughs> late a couple of times. I mean, so it's I don't I don't know. Okay. If you guys are forgetting. He's the CEO day. of Twitter, of SpaceX, oh, he's busy. of the boring he's busy. company, he's busy. of Neuralink. Oh, and right. also a six hundred and fifty billion dollar market cap company called Tesla. OK, so, oh, yeah, 30 minutes late. That's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
Jessica, I think what's interesting, you guys are bringing up competition and how maybe competition is having just as hard of a time because they are coming at a later stage than Tesla. But that was interesting. There was actually just a survey where I think it was Rivian actually had higher customer satisfaction than a Tesla. So I think some of the question is, what do consumers want to buy? And Tesla has this really big push right now where they're trying to get 20 million vehicles sold by 2030. Which and is, it's also only eight customers at Rivian. <coughs> right, yeah. So it wasn't, hard, it wasn't hard to knock it out of the park for those eight. Uh, but it is a really ambitious goal for them, considering, I mean, Tesla right now is the largest selling automaker. They had 10 and a half million units sold last year, and Tesla's trying to get to 20 million in 2030. So that's assuming they're selling a lot of cars. It's not that distant in the future, and the demand has to be there for that. And I think that's where, I don't know if they officially um, announced their Mexico um, plant yet, but they would need that to get to that kind of production. But um, the demand has to be there, and I don't know if i quite quite seeing that match up yet. I mean, Elon Musk mm-hmm. said he would need about a dozen factories to get to that target, so yeah. that's a lot of CapEx spent. Yeah. Um, again, this is going on right now as we speak. The only other headline that has come out so far, as far as we can see, is that the Cybertruck is coming out in 2023, which is basically reaffirming um, the forecast date from before. But we'll keep you posted on any other developments here. Meantime, stocks kicking off a March on a muted note. The S&P and Nasdaq down fractionally while the Dow managed to eke out a gain. But yields were higher across the board. The 10-year yield topping 4% for the first time since November. One big bright spot, resource stocks rocketing higher yet again today. A strong economic da- data out of China suggests that the company is rebounding well from its COVID lockdowns. Names like Alcoa, Freeport MacMoran, Rio Tinto, all adding to their gains for the week. Chinese tech stocks also jumping. K-Web, the internet ETF, putting in its best day since January 4th. China's the place to be, I guess. Well, it's China's the, the, the place to be now. And then in two weeks, it could be not the best place to be. When we see everything geopolitically-wise, they're still on the edge of the sword. Right. So it's it's I don't want to say it's uninvestable, but when you look at this resource trade, they had great Januaries and horrific Februaries. So we're coming off of a low, a synthetic low, whether or not you could say they shouldn't have been that low coming out of January for that for the robust January. And they shouldn't have been that low in February. But they're still based on whatever the last headline is regarding China. So it's not as it, just be prepared for volatility if you're going to be investing in China. Well, it's funny. When I looked at the market today, I saw the resource names. I saw energy acting well in some yeah. of the industrials here relative to the data in China. But then on the flip side of that, I saw the stuff that last year in 2022 that got killed when we saw rates going up. Did you see Amazon? Did you see Apple? Yeah. Did you see Microsoft all down more than a percent in a quarter? I also saw the banks got actually hit kind of hard here, too. So that 10 year approaching 4 percent, I think it closed at 3.99. It's going to be above 4% pretty soon. Might we see, you know, a bifurcated market in a way? I, I agree with Steve. I, I think the COVID reopening, the, the zero COVID reversal, I just don't see that as a lasting trade here in the U.S. in our markets. And I think that we are going to be much more slave to, I think, rising yields or higher for longer. And so some of the valuations that maybe got a little overdone to the downside, like we were just talking with the Tesla in January, I think they overshot to the upside here. And the realization that rates are going to stay, listen to all these Fed's that we're hearing. I mean, it's like a yeah. chorus of them, one after another. I think this is going to start weighing on valuations at a time where we're going to start rethinking the, uh, I guess, the health of the economy as we get closer to the mid- mid-year. I actually think for some amount of time still to go that we haven't felt the full China reopen trade yet, right? So I think that for names like Nike or Starbucks, or I, I don't have any position on, but I think that it wouldn't be surprising for them to see some strength there. I mean, we, we, you know, on the Louis Vuitton call, they talked about Macau. Absolutely incredible. So I think we could see strength there. But we do have this sort of very political football of TikTok. And I think that would really 
put a potential freeze, not that it's not frosty already, it is the you know, U.S.-China relations, but I think that could throw, a, throw another wrench into the system of the China right. trade. I mean, we were sitting here last night counting down the minutes to the 7 o'clock um, you know, committee hearing on China yesterday night. Uh, you know, with all this TikTok talk and, and potential bans and maybe bans on outflows in terms of investment. I mean, these relations are not getting any better at all, Courtney, mm-hmm. especially as more and more people from here are planning trips to Taiwan, which is not exactly going to help the situation either. Yeah, and that's where I do agree with you here that we're probably going to continue to see volatility when it comes to China or your emerging markets. I do think longer term, it still has a lot of opportunity here. The valuations are still much cheaper than the U.S. Um, but actually, the resource trade, which you are ha- talking about earlier, I actually do like that because take something um, like when you look at copper, China, just the one country, is more than half of the global demand towards China. And as you are seeing them reopen, that is going to continue. And add on top of that, that it's, it's a main resource when it comes to electric vehicles. So rather than buying a Tesla, which is really expensive, you can buy a copper company, which goes into that, plus is the China reopening. So I think there's a way to play this without buying, like, the Chinese technology companies, for example. Yeah, we had Duarte um, O'Neill on last night, and we, we were talking about this whole situation, and really it came back to, and I think you brought it back to, the fact this is all really inflationary. So, like, right? Like, so that was one of the things. And, and I just want to make one point, Karen, about, like, your Nike and your Starbucks. You, that's already in. The zero COVID reversal, look at the way those stocks ran into like off the lows and they just kept on going. So I think a lot of U.S. multinationals already priced that in a bit. And I think it's funny that you see resource trades, um, you know, acting the way they are um, right now. But I'll just say this, you know, and this goes back to Tesla and it goes back to Apple. They're going to be the two last battles fought in this thing, because when you think about their reliance on Chinese consumers, the reliance on manufacturing over there. And we were talking about this, I think, on our call earlier, you know, if all of China's uh, or all of Apple's suppliers are reorienting. They're moving to other places, emerging markets. I think that makes much less importance of Apple being in China if uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs are going to go outside of China. And, you know, you brought this up, the nationalistic tendencies or their ability to kind of influence that. You know, Apple is like fourth in, in market share in smartphones in China. Tesla is like fifth in smart uh, in, in uh, EVs in China. And it's a big part of their f- potential future growth. And I think it's a big part of their valuation. Well, what of China coming back online is deflationary because now we have the manufacturing. So it, it counteracts that demand pull. And plus what you just said, there's a lot of corporations that are doing a, a workarounds, but it's not ready for prime time yet. What but are our biggest inputs? supply chain no. improvement so, is Yeah, supply chain improvement will be deflationary. Exactly. exactly. But okay. inflationary when it comes to reasonable. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you might have this balance where everyone is looking at it in absolute terms on one side or the other, but if you compare the two, we don't know what the final equation is going to add up to. We don't know what that, what, what that outcome well, is going if, to be. If you fix the supply chain issues, you think about supply chain as, a, as an issue of national security, right? And you say, okay, there's going to be more demands for manufacturing jobs here, right, as they reshore. Well, look at where unemployment is at 53-year lows at 3.4%. And if you look at wage growth, and I know it's been moderate. That's inflationary. Over, I agree with no, that. No, no, but that is really inflationary. And then you put that together with the one thing that most consumers feel the pinch on, and it is gas at the pump, right? So to me, I think those two things are one of the reasons, again, I'll just go back to this, higher for longer. All right. Uh, got to get to a market flash here on Silvergate Capital. Shares are plunging after hours. Seema Modi's got the details. Seema. Hey, Melissa, that's right. Uh, let's take a look at shares of Silvergate, which are moving lower here. 
Uh, after the company has delayed the filing of its 10K, you're seeing the stock is down about 23%. In a statement, the bank says uh, it requires additional time to perform analysis, record journal entries related to subsequent events, related and to complete management's evaluation of internal controls over financial reporting. This is, of course, one of the top banks in the cryptocurrency space. You can see shares down 22% here over time. Melissa? Wow. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi, that's probably just about the worst headline you could possibly get from a company that they're going to delay their 10Q. If you're a bank. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a man, if you're Chegg, you know, that might, but not that, not to make disparaging remark, disparaging remarks against Chegg. I totally made that up. But yes, if you're a bank, this is disconcerting. Um, what happened here? Um, between the time that they announced their earnings and the filing of the 10K, yeah, that's, <laughs> you should be concerned. Because that wasn't yeah. that long ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. And so there had been stories about this investigation into, uh, you know, FTX's mm -hmm. relationship with Silvergate and was that, I, I don't even know exactly what the investigation was about. Maybe that's part of this delay filing. Banks delaying a filing like this is really not a good thing. Yeah, and they recently got huge investments from. Yes, right. Well, just share, just share purchases. They didn't. Purchases. They didn't yeah, get yeah. any. Um, they also, though, interestingly and surprisingly to me, they did not pay their preferred dividend, right? Which it was only two million dollars. Was surprising to me why they wouldn't do. They didn't have to pay it. it they don't have to, but just sort of sends a message. I guess it sent a louder, uh, a secret message. Well, now the message is loud and clear. <laughs> yeah. uh, shares are down 22% right now. For more on where the markets go from here, let's bring in the chart master, Carter Worth. Carter, S&P 500. You know, I told you before that I had to look up pair of twos definition. I'm glad I did because you're using it again. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, sometimes it's just, uh, what, a malaise. It's stuck. It's spinning its tires. It being a stock, a currency, a commodity, an index. Uh, the market is basically going nowhere. And in many senses, uh, that's why the pair of twos designation exists. Big hands are big, and we know in life when you have a big opportunity, you go for it. Um, this is not three of a kind. It is not a flush. It is not a straight. It is almost five random cards. My bias remains the downside. And I think ultimately that uh, on an intermediate basis, there's little to no upside and unknown but prospectively meaningful downside. And every time we have these big counter trend moves, the bullish sentiment pops and it seems to be dashed repeatedly. So you see the chart here, converging trend lines. It's even money, fair money. Again, my bias is the downside. But let's take a, a longer term iteration. That's a year chart. That's five years. Again, it's if you didn't know what it was, that's the thing. And someone showed you this chart, a pictorial representation of price. What about that would make you run out and buy it? or frankly, let's sell all of it, short it. It's just sort of equilibrium. Um, now, does that mean it's gonna stay here? Of course not. People think it's going up in a big way. This chart is important. It's the long-term chart, picking up the financial crisis uh, peak, the 09 low, and we have ascended within this perfect 45 degree channel since the 09 low until we went out through the top in late 21, early 22. And valuations at that point, because fundamentals and charts match up, were at or near records. And now we're sitting at the midpoint of the channel. Again, just even Steven, uh, a pair of twos. But I do think we have more risk of going to the bottom half of the channel than back to the top. What is the bottom half of the channel, just for reference, Carter? 
Well, it's how quickly you get there, right? Because it's moving. So if you go there tomorrow, it's sub 3,000. If you get there towards the middle of the year, uh, end of the year, it's more like 33, 3,500. Okay. Either way, that's, <laughs> that's a lot. Carter, thank you. You bet. Carter Braxton Worth. So we all, we all, you know, that, that chart is, is pretty scary if you look at the bottom side. And I think it's around 2,800 is the bottom of that, of that channel. And as Carter said, so it's 2,800 to about 32, 3,300. But what's impressive about this market is that we were holding the 200 day. We tapped it again today, almost down to the penny. So as long as we can keep testing the 200 and stay above, that's your barometer. Unfortunately, there's a couple of tests that are going on it. I think we're going to wind up playing with the same 150, 200 handles in the S&P until we have closure. All right. All right. Coming up, we're all over all over the after hours action. Salesforce shares are jumping after results. We're bringing the details from the quarter next. Plus, a retail route shares of Kohl's and Lowe's sinking after their reports. Is a retail pain just getting started? We will dig in when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Salesforce surging after an earnings beat and strong guidance. The company also expanding its share buyback program. The conference call is underway. Let's get straight to Steve Kovac with more on the quarter. Steve. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, beat across the board for Salesforce, sending shares soaring about 16% here after hours, also wrapping up its fiscal 2023 with strong revenue and profit growth. Revenue for the quarter is up, though, 14% from a year ago, and full-year revenue is up 18% from the year before. And that strong guidance largely to credit for the shares skyrocketing here after hours, both for the current quarter and the full year. For the current quarter, Salesforce predicting about 10% year-over-year revenue growth, beating expectations of $8 billion in sales. But the real story around Salesforce today, guys, the who's who of activist investors circling the company, that includes Starboard Value, Value Act, and Third Point. And today, our David Faber reporting another investor, Elliott Management, nominated a slate of directors for the board. Now, no word from Salesforce on that yet, but the call is just getting started, and we're expecting CEO Mark Benioff to address the activist activity. And I'll be back here with more updates for you, Melissa. All right. Thanks so much, Steve Kovac. Um, Karen, you're just saying today that the number of activists involved in this is just extraordinary. I know. I've never seen anything quite like this. And I actually I feel kind of stupid because with these many activists, you got to think he was trying so hard, Mm -hmm. whatever it took to put. I mean, these numbers across the board and almost every metric were really, really strong. And well, that makes sense that that would have happened. Um, And I don't think that was fully reflected in the stock. Clearly not, because you look at where it is after hours. Um, 
I don't know, maybe he puts a couple of them on the board. It's hard for them to, this sort of takes some wind out of the sails. Yeah. Of the activists. I guess, although the, the bigger so, argument is that operating mar margins have, are, have been shrinking. Right. And right? this so acquisitions haven't been. Right, right. Have been dilutive. And yes. so that has been the problem. This gives him definitive breathing room right now. So you have six activists that are breathing down his throat. He had to, to Karen's point, come out with a home run here or a grand slam relative to the fears or relative to where the market was positioning going into this print. He knocked the cover off the ball. And to your point, can he continue to do this? Because this is not go going to bide him a lot of time. Right. This is going to give him, the this could give him a week. Yeah. And then all of a sudden yeah. the activists now start breathing down his throat yet again. Yeah, yeah. there's probably a vote in May. Right. Yeah. How do you feel on CRM? Yeah, I do think there's some trouble here because what CRM has been really trying to do is make some changes to make it more efficient, right? This is with all tech companies right now, it's the year of efficiency and they really have to make things more efficient and more profitable. Um, but they also have this company culture that people are fighting them on. So they keep trying to make things more efficient. Their, their um, employees have come back multiple times and said, eh, that's not with our company culture. So yes, these activist investors can come in and say they want X, Y, and Z, but are their employees going to follow that or how much can they do without losing that? I think is going to be the question. There's been a big push and pull on that. So Debo this morning on Squawk on the Street was, was um, mm -hmm. you know, going through a laundry list of things that Salesforce spends money on, like a, a health retreat, mm -hmm. a state that they own, and these fancy baristas. Metallica, really Dreamforce. Just, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. $10 million yeah. for Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. I love those it. commercials. I, I would have done it for nine. I love those commercials. I mean, that, that powder blue suit he's wearing, right, I want it. Which I think he actually <laughs> What's he doing owns? at the laundromat, though? Uh, why? I, I, why? I, no. uh, I actually why saw him at an event. And, and, and he was wearing, I, I'm not lying right. to you. He yeah. I said, I, that suit. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to, we just get back but to I mean, stuff. But it just shows you that, that culture, yeah. that, that. Listen, uh, Ben Benioff is, is a legend. You know, this company was started in the kind of still in the web 1.0 world. And he kind of hit the confluence of, you know, like mobile and social and, you know, and, and broadband and all that sort of stuff. And he defined this category. I think he's going to get room. I, I don't, I wouldn't be worried about these activists. I don't worry about today. I don't think he did, did any pulled rabbits out of hats and you just can't do that you can't be him and you can't do that this stock will fill in that gap though people okay so like if you think that today's up 14 percent is that like gives him so much breathing room it probably doesn't okay people were probably set up when you think about all the turnover they've had in the c-level suite think about this company it is a roll-up okay like there's no doubt about it we've seen this before remember cisco remember like there's a whole host of these things so again i think the, these activists might have some good ideas it probably would help him to have some of these people on the board you know if you think about it so Again, it'll find like the right price here. This is probably not it. I, I suspect it comes back. By the way, CEO Mark Benioff will join Jim on Mad Money at the top of the hour. So you will not want to miss that interview. Meantime, there's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Rough retail. Big names dropping as earnings keep filtering in. But are there bargains in the space? The traders are shopping around. Next. Plus, environmentally unfriendly. A battle on the hill as lawmakers take aim at ESG. What a repeal could mean for stocks and Mother Earth. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magic. 
stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. A rough day for retail and a couple of disappointing earnings reports. Lowe seeing its worst day since September after giving soft sales outlook and warning of a cautious consumer. Kohl's, meantime, reporting a surprise loss, pointing to ongoing inflation pressures. Those moves weighing on the broader sector, the XRT dropping one and a half percent. Courtney, I think you're watching Kohl's today. Yeah, and Kohl's, um, I think, was interesting because they really had a disappointing holiday sales season, which I think no one would be wanted to see because if there was going to be any quarter they did good on, I think that was it. And when you look at it historically, I mean, retail sales since 2019 have gone up collectively by about 28 percent. Yet people are spending about 15 or spending at Kohl's gone down about 15 percent of that time frame. So they're just not catching the spending that's happening in retail right now. And I think that is unfortunately going to be a problem for them. You're Kohl's. <laughs> no, you're no, watching. Well, Kohl's. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, other. if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So let's move on to Lowe's, Lowe's the other one yeah. mentioned today. And I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, obviously, we know the headwinds in the housing sector, right? With rates up, you know, we see fewer transactions. Um, they talked about how old the housing base is, how much work it needs. They talked about how good pro was. They did a lot of things right. They have some wage pressure. Um, they talked about... Um, uh, lumber prices coming in was also pressure. But, you know, this is a company that trades at uh, below market multiple. It's a fantastic company. They do a very good job. They deliver a lot of value back to shareholders and buybacks. And um, I just think, well, they sort of paint the case, and I think it's a very uh, believable one, that there's still a lot of equity in people's homes. They can't afford to move. They can't afford to sort of upscale, fix their home. And as long as they're employed... So I think that it was overdone. So maybe this is a three-day rule one. I don't know, Steve. I, I thought it wasn't nearly as bad as but, this, considering that it was already down on Home, Home Depot. Depot. Right. right. Holistically so, on retail, though, can we all agree this right now? So you saw that um, subprime auto delinquency rate is at like a 15-year right. high, 6%, right? We're seeing credit card balances at like 10-year highs, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I mean, so like there is stress that has not really been revealed in the consumer. It's just starting to come out a little bit. We saw that consumer's confidence print, which was was really disappointing yesterday. So again, I think the retail stocks are saying something that was not been confirmed in the consumer just yet. All right. Coming up, the anti-ESG movement gaining steam as lawmakers lock horns on Capitol Hill. Can legislators take the woke out of investing? That is next. And Lilly slashing prices of its most popular insulin drug. What the CEO had to say about the cuts? Next. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the market today. The Dow eking out a small gain at the close, while the S&P and Nasdaq both dropped about a half a percent. The S&P on pace for its fourth negative week in a row. Despite today's lackluster indices move, some names trading near 52-week highs, Wynn Resorts, Otis Worldwide, and Booking Holdings among them. On the other hand, there's Netflix. Today's losses are erasing all of the streamers' gains since its last earnings report. Meantime, the debate on woke funds taking center stage in Washington, the Senate just passing a so-called anti-ESG rule. Our Eamon Javers is tracking the story in Washington. Eamon, what's the latest? Hey there, Melissa. The Democrats lost two votes this afternoon, and that's all it took to lose the battle today. Democrats were hoping to preserve a Department of Labor rule that allows investment managers of retirement plans to consider 
so-called ESG factors when making investment decisions, that is, environmental, social, and governance issues. Now, this bill would strike down that rule, but the Democrats still have an ace in the hole here in President Biden. The White House has signaled that he will veto the bill when it hits his desk, which means the ESG rule likely stays in place. So why is this important then? Because the Republican fight against ESG investing as so-called woke investing doesn't end here, and this vote gives us a sense of just how much momentum they have. So watch this space, Melissa. Eamon, just to be clear on this Department of Labor rule, this, this allowed managers to do what exactly? But they are still uh, have a fiduciary duty, which, which means that they have to act in the best interest right. of, their, of their investors, of their shareholders. So how does this actually change right. anything? But think of it, well, think of it as expanding the, the sense of what's in the best interest of the yeah. shareholders, right? Of, of the investors, rather. Uh, that is, you know, if there's an environmental calamity, like that's not very good for investment returns in the future. So uh, what is in your best interest depends on what factors you're considering. This would allow them to consider those uh, ESG factors as they're making investment decisions as part of their fiduciary responsibility. Even it's Karen, let me ask you, what about for funds that are already invested? Would there be a reconsideration? That's a really good question. I don't know if this applies to new investment decisions or to already invested funds. I would imagine, I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, I'd imagine if you're already in it, you don't have to necessarily say why you got into it you know, a year ago or six months ago or what have you, but I'm going to have to check that one for you. All right, Eamon, thanks so much. Eamon Javers in yep. Washington. Um, this is, I mean, in terms of allocations toward ESG strategies, Trillions have been allocated to this strategy. Trillions, and, and it's, it's coming down the pike, but I think that people would find another way of investing. So if this went away, which it's not, because he's, uh, President Biden is just going to veto it, and then you need two-thirds of the Senate to overturn that veto. All they have is Manchin and Tester, yep. so they only got two from the Democratic side. So I, I, I think regardless of what happens here, the puck is going towards that direction, and they'll figure out a way to make investments around that either way. All right. For more on what a repeal of the ESG investment rule could mean, let's bring in Tarek Fancy. He's board chair of digital education platform Rumi and the former CIO of BlackRock Sustainable Investing. Um, Tarek, we were just outlining how unlikely this is to actually pass because Biden will, will veto it in that sense. So um, what is, how, how important is this in terms of the symbolism of this? I mean, the symbolism is really the most important thing, because in a sense, I mean, I don't think substantively it's going to change that much for all of the reasons that you just mentioned. But it is, in a sense, a fight over a marketing narrative, right? I mean, ESGs come under fire in the last few years for being, you know, kind of green paint on the existing system. But it's important to note that the green paint of ESG was really directed at Democrats and progressives, right? Um, it, it started growing, especially after Trump's election. And if you look at the S issues in ESG, most ESG funds sort of take an angle that, you know, even where the evidence isn't clear, that seems to align with progressive views. And so you've seen now a rise of anti-ESG funds, anti-ESG approaches, you know, to the extent that ESG is a price segmentation strategy intended for Democrats. I'm not sure that we should be that surprised that at a minimum, the Republicans see value in, you know, making a lot of noise about it to, you know, to maybe influence the culture of business. Mm -hmm. This was a bipartisan effort, <clears throat> as we noted, um, and and we also got back in December Vanguard pulling out of the net zero 
uh, agreement, which is the, the coalition of asset managers that were, were going to be publicly committed to reducing uh, greenhouse gases. And Vanguard's CEO put it very simply. He said, our research does not indicate that ESG investing is, is better, yields better results in broad-based investing. Does corporate America, do they have more permission, and I'm using that in quotes, to say, you know what, we're putting ESG to the side. It's just, it, you know, it's not going to be our prerogative right now. I think the important thing is to remember that ESG is just a marketing narrative, right? Because 20 years ago when I learned to invest, I was a fiduciary. And it was normal that you would look at the possibility that pollution could cause liabilities, that you have, could have labor issues, that corporate governance matters. You know, that stuff is all going to stay, and I think CEOs will keep operating according to how they did before on that, which is to say that if it's material and it matters to your bottom line, you're probably going to focus on it, you know, just from a value rather than values perspective. But ESG has, you know, after I learned to invest, became this sort of marketing narrative that was pulled out. And I think that the, the that's really more about PR. And two, two, three years ago, the ESG PR push was to focus on Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and so on. Uh, now it's, you know, gas prices are higher and, you know, there's a pushback. And, and so the ESG angle, you know, you have BlackRock suddenly writing letters to the to Texas showing off how much that, you know, they've got invested in fossil fuels. And so I think for CEOs, I don't think it substantively changes how you look at ESG and your business from a value perspective. But it probably does influence a little bit your PR and positioning because, you know, there's a there's a shrinking amount of space for them to operate in without getting caught in political, uh, you know, sort of political fights. Do you think the marketing narrative that you describe has uh, hurt investors in any way in that maybe people were taking the narrative too far, um, you know, investing in that style in a way which may not always be in a fiduciary manner? You were describing, yes, of course, you know, when you when you take a look at investing at an oil company, for instance, you look at the risk of an oil spill, their safety protocols, et cetera, et cetera, those things. Those are certainly things that are, are shareholder risks, clearly. Um, but has this gone too far in your view? I don't think so. I think the idea that it's gone too far is the idea that even though they have a fiduciary responsibility, managers would have been leaning into these issues, even against their own interests and their incentives. It seems unlikely to me. All right. Tarek, it's always great to see you. Thank you. Tarek, yes. fancy. I don't know. I mean, do you get clients asking you, Courtney, about how are you investing in ESG and am I ESG oriented? I get it much more so than from my younger clients. I feel like my like baby boomer clients have no interest in this and like could care less. Um, but you are starting to get, you know, your younger clients want certain things. And the only problem with ESG is it's so subjective, like how you define what ESG is and what it is to me might be different than you and it might be different to Karen, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and that, that's, I think, what makes us really tough. And I think ultimately this sounds like a, nu a nuance. It's really what we can recommend or should recommend. These funds sound like they can still be in accounts if a client wants them. They can still override what the manager is saying, is my understanding. Um, and I think that's what this comes down to, is what is a manager recommending versus ultimately what does a client want to invest in? Um, and I think that's always going to be that push and pull is there. So what's best from a long-term investment standpoint versus what you believe in might be two different things. But just having that option, it's, it's going to be a political football for a while here. Yeah. Where do you think this goes from here? So I, I do agree. You, you said it. So it is subjective. I agree with you. It said before that when you look at the back testing on this, they don't outperform any other fund, but maybe it's too new of, of you know, companies. But when we look at whenever politics gets in the way, we have a cylindra. We throw money at things that aren't ready for prime time yet. And a lot of the capital markets and a lot of the markets will direct where money should go and wh whether or not they're ready 
and, and they're mature enough to be there. I don't think it's mature enough to be ba basing your investments purely on ESG. I think that's a little ignorant. Yeah, I mean, if the SEC stepped in and said, this is what ESG is, these are oh. the criteria, it'd be a whole other story because then you know what you're getting right. as opposed to just saying this is ESG. That makes me more nervous. Though. I know. Who is oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. yeah, I mean, that's right. the other side of it. It's like, do right. you really want that to be regulated in some way? I don't know. That is such a thorny, to, yeah. I mean, to try to go in and define that. How do you know what ESG is? Right. You just, you know when you see it. Uh -oh. That and kind that of, brings, that kind of that pornography. Yes. Right. That brings you back to, is it really superior if you can't right. define if it? Right. you can't define so subjective. It does just seem like a, this will be this sort of a marketing thing of the moment, yeah. not the underlying issues of, you know, people wanting to invest in things that they feel good about or that they feel help, you know, humanity help the world. But ESG itself is it's so ill-defined right now. Yeah. Coming up, drug drop. Lily slashing prices for some of its best-selling drugs. What it could mean for the stock in your wallet. And mark your calendars for a CNBC Your Money event, Women and Wealth, on April 11th. We'll explore ways that women can increase their income and save for the future. Register at CNBCEvents.com for the virtual event. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Eli Lilly ending the day roughly a percent higher. The company slashing prices of its most prescribed insulin treatments by 70 percent. Also expanding a program to limit patients' out-of-pocket expenses to $35 a month. Our Meg Terrell just spoke with Lilly CEO David Rick. She joins us now with more. Meg. Hey, Mel. Well, this comes after a lot of pressure around insulin as sort of the poster child of high drug prices. And the fact that Lilly is actually taking this step to lower the list price, it's cutting uh, Humalog and Humulin's list price by 70% and the non-branded version of insulin down to $25 a vial from more than $80. That was kind of the final frontier in what they could do to try to actually lower the price of insulin. Interestingly, the stock rose uh, as a result today. We asked Dave Ricks what kind of feedback he's been hearing from investors on this. Here's what he told us. There is a headwind financially. We put that in our guidance this year, but mostly I think um, they're focused on the new products that are driving the future growth of the company. Insulin is an important product for a company. We've been making it for 100 years, but it's not really a growth driver. Um, and so th I think that's the investor perspective uh, for today. But we do serve uh, two and a half million patients and they care about the news today. Interestingly, though, I did have conversations with analysts today uh, about how the fact that the president praised this move could be contributing to Lilly's share price rising and also the fact that it could potentially take share from uh, Sanofi and Novo Nordisk. I did reach out to those companies uh, to ask if they were going to follow suit. That has been called for by the president as well as Bernie Sanders just this afternoon. Uh, both companies detailed the things that they've been doing uh, in terms of trying to lower costs, but did not indicate they plan to follow suit in lowering the list price. We'll see if that actually transpires. You know, we also talked with Dave Ricks about what the growth drivers are of the company. Munjaro, it's huge diabetes drug, uh, he pointed out has been off to a fantastic start. He called it an unbelievable initial uptake in diabetes, and they're hoping for approval in obesity by the end of the year. Analysts are looking at that as a more than $20 billion drug by 2030. The estimates are just crazy for this one. Also, in Alzheimer's, they've got data coming up in the second quarter. Uh, he said they're expecting those phase three results in the coming weeks and months. He said we've never been more confident in this program. That is going to be a huge uh, event for the stock. So a really important one to watch coming up pretty soon. Mel? I thought, Meg, that it was interesting that they decided to cut prices on a drug which is made less um, necessary if the success of Monjaro really takes off. <laughs> 
I mean, they've got this drug that right <laughs> that can prevent diabetes or help manage, help people manage it, and they're going to cut the price of insulin. Well, that makes sense, actually. <laughs> That's a really good point. Of course, there's type 1 diabetes, uh, which wouldn't be helped by treating obesity. But uh, you do make a really good point in terms of type 2 diabetes, where people do sometimes need to use insulin as well. <laughs> Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with an update on the full pipeline, Karen. You must be excited about this. Yeah, well, Lily, I had sold Lily and Novo Nordisk, which actually was not a good sale, um, because I thought this, I mean, as fantastic as these drugs are, Ozempic and Wigovi for Novo Nordisk and Trisepatide and Monjaro for Lily, as gigantic as I think they are, I think that it was sort of like, you know, the Star Wars box office thing, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news. And once it started really selling, it's fantastic, life-changing products. But um, I'm out right now. Yeah. Uh, that 20 billion estimate, and it's going to take years and, and those new drugs. But when you think about it off a uh, 30 billion base, I mean, that is some serious growth over the next few years. So this stock, Lilly, has sold off, what, 375 to about, it was trading 310 or something today. I mean, Guy would say, I think he said it last night, like at 25 times, it's like the most expensive large pharma stock that you have. And Tim was talking about Pfizer on the flip side. You know, it trades at well below many of its peers and all that stuff. You probably go with Lilly here. And Lilly actually hasn't performed. It's underperformed the market and its peers. And when you talk about the new drug, the diabetes drug, they project that to be 27% of revenue, where the two insulin drugs were 18% of revenue. So they're going in the right direction, but the market really hasn't rewarded them in the past. They've definitely underperformed. I, I wonder what that underperformance is really about. Maybe it's, there's inefficiencies under the hood. And I don't like when somebody cuts a price when they get shamed into cutting the price. Mm. It, it felt as if it was definitely a political thing. Their image got, hit, got cut, so they cut the price on it. It wasn't the reverse. All right. Uh, by the way, we're still watching shares of Tesla. Tesla, the investor day is going on in Austin right now as we speak. Um, the stock is down about 2.5%. Not too many headlines out so far. So far, Tesla aims to cut next-generation vehicle assembly costs by 50%. We'll keep you posted on any, any new developments that come. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of C3AI dropping nearly 10% today ahead of its quarterly results tomorrow. Options traders are betting on a huge move for the stock. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly joins us with the action. Kevin. Hi, Melissa. Well, C3AI actually had almost two times the amount of calls versus puts today, to, despite the action in the in the stock price at 1.87 times the amount of calls. And that's interesting going into tomorrow's move where you're going to see an implied move off of earnings of about 14.3 when the average is 6.8%. And so we saw the largest trade today was 395 contracts that expires March 10th. And that's of the $25 call. And they paid about 70 cents earlier this morning when the stock was at around $21.70. All right, Kevin, thanks. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Steve. Tesla, if it gives you a discount <laughs> tomorrow, take it. <laughs> Sorry to catch you by surprise. <laughs> Courtney, a Freeport McMahon on China reopening and continued EV demand. I think this is a good play. Karen. Yes, I didn't think Lowe's was that bad, but it was down a lot. Wait two more days and then buy some Lowe's. Dan. Yeah, Lily's getting close. And happy birthday to my dad, 81 years old. Oh, happy birthday. Nathan. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.